This week on the Totally Biased Media Podcast, we talk Mass Effect Legendary Edition again, but this time the second one. Discuss the true fate of the Furious. Jordan reveals his hidden love for King of Queens. And more. Stay tuned for another Mako-free episode of TBM. I'm Jackson Walkup, and, uh, oh, can this wait for a bit? I'm in the middle of some calibrations. I'm Jason Simmons, and this is my favorite podcast on the internet. I'm Jordan Walkup, and though I'm past 100,000 miles, I'm feeling very still. And I think my spaceship knows which way to go. Tell my wife I love her very much, she knows. Ground control to Major Tom. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back with more Mass Effect, just like we promised. Just a few weeks later than we promised, because I messed up the schedule for something else. Now, this time, we are honing in on Mass Effect 2, a game which originally released in January of 2010. But, thanks to the Legendary Collection, we have it now on that sweet new hardware. And Jackson, why don't you kick us off with the story of Mass Effect 2? Oh, uh, hey, I, I finished up those calibrations. Uh, where are we at now? This bit gone on too long, bud. Just start it. <laughs> so, shortly after the events of Mass Effect 1, Commander Shepard and his crew of the Normandy are on a mission to some planet when some alien ship comes out of nowhere and attacks them, causing the ship to start crashing into the planet and everyone but Shepard, or at least none of the like the major crew members, uh, they all survived. But Shepard and maybe some of the random crew members that are like unnamed all died. Can you believe and he then, just said that about my boy Presley? Shut up. What can you do? Hate that man. Anyways, two years later, Shepard wakes up alive and finds out that the sort of terrorist organization from Mass Effect 1, Cerberus, had a program that brought him back to life to have him stop another threat to the universe. And you meet the leader of Cerberus, Elusive Man, who tells you about this mission and then sends you to gather a team to take out this new threat. And from there, the game opens up to let you explore new worlds and cities and all sorts of stuff. Cool. I missed most of that because I was fixing my headphones, but I'm just going to assume you did it well, and I'm going to pass it over to Jason to start us on that review. So, I guess, let's start specifically with the comparison between 1 and 2, because we all really liked 1, of course. Like We all had good things to say about it, but what are some of the biggest improvements from 1, in your opinion? Um, I would say the combat is probably the biggest improvement. I mean, straight off, right from the get-go, it's more responsive. Uh, it replaced the system where you had unlimited ammo, but you had cooldowns all the time with just straight up adding in ammo packs, essentially. Which I know some people don't like. I think it's a really good change, uh, and it makes a lot more sense in context, too. See, I like the old system simply because even though you essentially still have a reload because of the cooldown, you don't run out of ammo. I have found too many times in Mass Effect 2, maybe I'm just bad at the game, that's a good possibility, <laughs> that I run out of ammo, even when I use my abilities a lot. I actually don't mind that I run out of ammo quite a bit. There's this handy little thing that Mass Effect 2 and 3 have that 1 doesn't, and that's that you can use any gun anytime, more or less. Like, in Mass Effect 2, uh, in comparison to the first one and the third one, you are limited to what types of guns you can equip based on your class, but you don't have to worry about putting skill points into your guns. They just kind of level up uh, with your class. You get better at using the guns. And then... 
On top of that, I think that this new ammo system kind of incentivizes using all your different guns because they have their own ammo pools. Yeah, I think that was sort of what sold me on the ammo versus the cooldowns was the fact that, like, for example, I'm playing as a class that has pretty limited weapon capabilities, but I use all three of my weapons a lot, like all three of them pretty evenly which is something I could not say about one. I If I went back and played one again with my same build, I don't think I would ever switch weapons off my pistol. Yeah. Like I, I tried, and it just was never worth it. I think that's a big thing, is Mass Effect 2 adds... For one thing, it adds multiple different types of pistols. There are, like, machine pistols, and then there are heavy pistols. Uh, but then on top of that, it just makes all the other weapons actually feel better and make them to where they're more usable in different situations. Like... I feel like uh, shotguns, especially, and sniper rifles in the first game are really hard to use unless you have a class that specializes in them. And even so, when I was playing Mass Effect 1, uh, I played Infiltrator in both games, uh, so I had sniper rifle proficiency. In Mass Effect 1, it didn't feel like there was nearly as many good times to use the sniper rifle as, you know, the pistol, because the pistol could do anything from any range, more or less. Right, especially if you were using a class that had proficiencies in the pistol like I was with the Vanguard, it was still, like, you know, obviously it's going to be better than all the other weapons. Even the shotgun, which is the other weapon the Vanguard class has, it was still pretty much useless just because of how good the pistol is. But in this game, everything's a lot more balanced, and even with the new ammo system, I feel that I, like, even if it was cooldowns like one... I still feel I'd be using all my guns a lot because I would switch to like, I'd have a uh, the burst fire auto rifle for sort of uh, medium range engagements and then a heavy pistol for longer range things and then a submachine gun for close range and then I just didn't even touch the shotgun because I'm going to be honest, they still kind of sucked. The, the second game, I will say, it still has the problem of there's a new best weapon in the game and its name is Sniper Rifles. I used my sniper rifle almost the whole game. Uh, they're amazing, honestly, because once you get past like the first few worlds, because there it adds a uh, research system, and as you research, you get new upgrades for your guns that make them do more damage or have a higher capacity, stuff like that. And as you're <laughs> as you upgrade the sniper rifle, you get to a certain point where any hit with a sniper rifle is an instant kill on normal enemies. No matter where you hit them. Like, you can hit them in the foot. <laughs> it's just like, alright, that enemy's done. Uh, and then, most normal enemy types, like enemies that have, uh, like, like engineers, they normally go down in, like, one headshot. So the only people you really have to worry about are, like, giant mechs or, uh, biotic enemies like with barriers now jackson is there anything anything aside from the combat that you think is like just a big big improvement from the first game i feel like the game is a lot more uh personal with your companions yeah through absolutely. the use of the uh first of all each companion has its own mission to get them on their team on your team and then after that you will eventually unlock a loyalty mission for each of them that goes more into their backstory and just a part of their life some. So that really just, it, it makes it feel a lot more personal between Shepard and the companions. Because some of the companions, when you first get them, don't really feel much feel like much. And then you do their mission and you just, you kind of feel closer to them. Yeah, I think that a big thing that this game has that was really lacking from the first was that in the first game you walk up to a character and you're like, I'm Commander Shepard, I am going on a mission, and they are pretty much all like, well, I'm coming too. <laughs> and in this game, you really see what their actual motivations are, and they all feel pretty thorough and valid, even if some of them are only coming along as a stepping stone to a much bigger goal, it still feels a lot more authentic than it did in the first game. I think that's a big part of the game, is this one is definitely more focused on just building up your team. Yeah. I Probably 80% of the main story for this game is just finding new people to follow you and making them trust you. Um, and I, I think that focus really helps to kind of make the companions more entertaining 
because it's like anytime you're working with a companion, you know that you're working towards, you know, helping yourself and helping them with this big final confrontation that you you know is coming the whole game. Uh, I mean, basically from the very beginning of the game, like they tell you you're going on a suicide mission, more or less. Like there's not very good hopes of coming back. And the more that you work with your companions, the more prepared that you're going to be and the better trust that you have between each other. I think it's also sort of like I'll say for me personally, I think that unlocking characters is probably the most rewarding thing that can happen in a video game period. I don't know why I've just always that's always been like the big draw for me. Like I play a ton of Smash Brothers, but the most I ever enjoy the game is just filling out the roster. And I think that this game kind of understands that people really like that feeling of unlocking characters and building up your arsenal in the process and it not only lets you do that in terms of you are better equipped for combat because you have this person but then you unlock basically that character's entire world which now overlaps with yours and i think that there's just a lot of really really smart decisions that are done there yeah and i especially this game introduces a lot of new companions. I think there are only two that are returning from the first game. Yeah. Garrus and uh, Tally both return. But everybody else is entirely new. And they all feel... I, I want to say much more unique than the followers that you have in the first game. Uh, I mean, they all have like very interesting backstories, kind of like what you mentioned earlier. Like In the first game, everyone is more or less following you because you know they want to you know save the galaxy but in mass effect 2 like the threat as far as most people know is only affecting humans so like the aliens don't really care most of the people that you get that are aliens are just there because they're getting paid (laughs) or you're helping them with some you know personal uh struggles that they're having yeah one of the dlc characters uh zaid i think is his name he's human but he the only reason he joins your cause is because the elusive man pays him to do so. And that's honestly, I think several of the followers or companions, whatever you want to call them, several of them basically just joined because the elusive man was like, I'll give you money if you help us. Yeah. And these people are just like, well, I have nothing to lose. Or worst case scenario, they're like, I have nothing else to live for. So... Yeah, there's a there's a character called uh, named Grunt. He just joins because he wants to fight, like not in any particular battle. He just wants to car to cause harm to living beings. But the fun really ar- uh, arises with your companions when they're interacting with each other. In my opinion, uh, I think some of the most standout moments are when you're doing a quest and you know uh, a difficult choice kind of pops up in front of you, and you'll have you know one companion that's saying to do one thing and they're like very passionate about it based on you know what's happened in their past and then your other companion will say the exact opposite yeah that kind of brings me to one of my complaints about the game during the loyalty missions and maybe during the missions to initially unlock new characters your current companions don't do much like, I understand them not being a big part of the story of this new character, but, like, they don't really have anything to say either. They're kind of just there in the background. And I think it would have been interesting to, like, see what your current companions have to say about your ongoing mission for this new companion. I mean, I don't really have any complaints about that. I mean, the reason that they're not talking is because they know that something bigger is going on than just them. I mean, do you really want one companion to constantly be stealing the limelight? Well, no, I don't want them to be stealing the limelight, but, like, it's kind of like they're not there at all. (laughs) I want them to steal the limelight, but only if it is Caden (laughs) Alenko. Sadly, Caden Alenko does not return. Not in this game, at least. And if you made the wrong decision, maybe not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that it's pretty clear this game builds on a lot from the first game. But is there anything that you guys think actually isn't as good as Mass Effect 1? Like, is there anything that doesn't hold up as well? Nah. Uh, No, everything about Mass Effect 2 is 
significantly better than the first in my opinion i will say so the first game's story it it, it serves the wider narrative of the series like the trilogy uh a lot more than this one does that was actually gonna say the same thing yeah the first game and the third game you know have this main focus of like you need to stop the reapers the second game kind of shies away from the reapers uh and you're going after the collectors instead and i mean it's pretty heavily implied in the beginning that you know the collectors are working for the reapers but throughout the whole game reaper presence doesn't really come up very often yeah for me it almost feels like this game is the second game in a series of like five games <laughs> because it feels like they're sidestepping the total narrative which if there was a lot more that came after it to expand upon the collect the connection between collectors and reapers i think that would be fine but i it's not that the story of this game is bad by any stretch i think that overall it's actually better than the first game it just doesn't feel as important like what you were doing feels like filler content in a bigger arc about the reapers yeah i would say mass effect 2 is definitely more standalone from the trilogy um other than its introduction of like different characters and new themes to the series uh because i mass effect 2 does a good job of kind of making things less black and white i mean Mm -hmm. as soon as the game starts you're working for you know people that were your enemies in the first game I mean, there's a whole story, uh, or a whole set of side missions in Mass Effect 1 where you're fighting against Cerberus, and then it's the second game, I mean, you're working with Cerberus throughout the whole thing. Um, and it kind of tries to show that, like, Cerberus is a bad organization, but nobody else in the galaxy really cares about what's happening, and those are the only people that are actually going to do something about it, so you need to work with them, even though you can't trust them. Um, and I feel like the first game doesn't really kind of explore the same themes in the same way, at least. Yeah, the first game, the first game feels like it is a linear story that can go one of two directions, whereas this game feels like it is a, it, it doesn't feel as linear because there is more variety to it, and it's not just a this is the good guy path and this is the bad guy path. Which it's not like all the decisions in Mass Effect 1 were just good versus bad, but there's a lot more ambiguity to what you're doing now, and it makes it feel less like just a standard hero or villain arc. Yeah, and I found myself uh, making the renegade choices a lot more often than I did in the first game. The first game, it kind of seemed like the Paragon options were always the good option. And, like, you're doing the wrong thing if you ever pick a Renegade option. This game, there's definitely a lot more grayness to it. I I mean, sometimes... (laughs) Sometimes, when you're doing good cop, bad cop, you do need to be bad cop just for a moment. (laughs) Yeah. And there's also a few times where I, I didn't really know that what I was picking was going to be Renegade. And then it just was. I was definitely so surprised that's... sometimes when I got renegade points after a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I found so the the whole thing with renegade not really being evil most of the time. I really liked that that kind of changed it up because like every, all the renegade stuff in the first game was just straight up evil. But in this game, you know, it's not. There are some things that, in my opinion, are better for whatever you're doing. Uh, this game also adds some contextual Paragon slash Renegade options when you're in dialogues. Uh, specifically, like, someone will be talking or doing something, and you'll have the opportunity to... It'll just pop up and be like, oh, if you want to hit one of the triggers, you'll do a Paragon action right now. And if you do it, it'll be like, oh, you go and give some crying lady a hug or something like that. <laughs> Or it'll be like, oh, you can hit the other trigger to do a renegade action. Your renegade action will be like punching a woman in the face. (laughs) And those are both real examples from the game. (laughs) (laughs) So, one thing that I think benefits how I feel about this game compared to the first one is there's sort of a change in the structure of missions 
did you guys think that was something as significant as I did? Like, did you guys feel like that changed the game in any real way? I liked how every time you did a mission, there was a short, like, ending screen where it had kind of a summary of what happened and showed you all the different stuff you got. Um, I, I thought that was a pretty welcome change, and it really helped to kind of split up the missions a little bit more. Yeah, that was sort of how I felt about it, too. It was a good bookend for a mission. It, like, it felt like there is the free exploration stuff, and there is the mission stuff. And those felt like separate entities this time around. It sometimes makes it feel a little blocky, like it's jumping over a lot of stuff. But at the same time, I think that it's... I I thought it was cool because I like if I'm just going around talking to my crew or just, you know, exploring, sort of. I like knowing that that isn't something that could turn into a fight. I like knowing that this is my time to just go and kick it with my teammates, who I like spending time with. And then the other half is the stuff where I'm out shooting aliens. Jackson, what what were your thoughts on that? One of the changes I kind of noticed later as I got in the game is side missions are a lot different this time around. In the first game, you'd have more important things to do, like stopping Cerberus from doing illegal experimentation. In this game, the side missions are more just like, oh, this guy on the Citadel lost his some item and he's blaming um, someone else for it. And you just you like go around to the nearby shops to find it. And I, I think that's a better change in my opinion. I just I like those kind of smaller side quests to be in the game, but like have more of them than have like a few of the like larger side quests that seem kind of more like side story missions if you know what i mean i think this game is just a lot more ready to call a mission like a full mission i i felt like the first game there was you know there were missions and assignments but it really felt like some of the assignments were missions and some of the missions were assignments uh, I feel like this game's a lot better at being like, well, if it's a mission, then there's probably going to be combat involved. You're actually going to be going out and doing something. And the assignments are generally just like, go to this planet and talk to this person. Uh, they're, they're a lot simpler. That division is actually part of the reason that I feel more obligated to go out and do everything this time around. Whereas in one, I gave up on doing everything pretty early on. I did everything in both, and I will say it was a lot more enjoyable in two. <laughs> Two has a lot less busy work. Uh, Specifically, one has a lot of missions where it's just like, go and scan every planet and hope you find all of these uh, (laughs) random shards. (laughs) And then on top of that, there's Mako missions in the first game where you have to drive that god-awful machine. Those are basically gone in two. Um, A couple of the DLC add a new vehicle called like the Hammerhead. Uh, but it flies, so it's a lot cooler. You also use it way less. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely shies away from making you sit in a vehicle as much, uh, which is really nice. But there, there's not as many, like, fetch quests. In the first game, you had to collect, like, 10 Asari writings, like, 26 Turian Signias, and then something for the Solarians, and then there was some some Prothean stuff you had to find. Like, that's not in this, because, like, they realize, like, that's just busy work. All that does is pad out the runtime of the game, and most people probably aren't going to bother with it. <laughs> right. Whereas, even though the side quests in 2 are still small, like just finding a random belonging someone lost in the Citadel, it still feels a little more... Uh, I, I'm not sure what the correct term to use is, but it just feels like you're actually working with characters when in the first game those sort of busy work assignments you're just driving the mako yeah and this game's also i'll say a lot better about having interesting characters outside of your team and like outside of the main story i feel like there are there are a lot of like npcs that are just standing around talking and honestly i found myself stopping and listening to them sometimes because they'd be talking about something really interesting or, you know, specifically there are some side characters that I find really interesting that they don't get too much expansion on because they're just side characters, but they're 
definitely a lot better written than I would expect. Uh, people like Captain Bailey, who you meet on the Citadel, and he's just like the head of CSEC for the specific ward that you're hanging out in. I think he's a really interesting character. Like, talking to him is always interesting, and he has some... I'm saying interesting a lot now that I'm thinking about it, but he has a lot of interesting, like, interactions with the people around on the ward. It feels like he actually lives there in comparison to the first game, where it feels like... The world just feels less lived in in the first game, and this game really helps to, you know, fix that. Yeah, in the first game, well, also in the second game, there are uh, sort of, there are VIs kind of just stationed around in the ward that tell you new information about different things. In the first game, it kind of felt like all the characters in the Citadel were like that. In this game, the extra characters actually feel like characters and not just another VI used to give you information. And there's also a lot more side characters that you can talk to. Like most of the store owners on the Citadel you can walk up to. And be like, I would like to have a discount here. And they're like, why should I give you a discount? And you're like, I'm Commander Shepard, and this is my favorite store on the Citadel. <laughs> and they say, good enough for me. And then every time you walk up to that store afterwards, you're going to hear your own voice saying, I'm Commander Shepard, and this is my favorite store on the Citadel. And it never ceases to be funny. But there's interactions like that on every single planet. where. You know, some character that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, like just a random shopkeeper, you can actually kind of have a conversation with and kind of get their opinions on what's going on on their planet or even in the galaxy as a whole. So we're running we're running pretty long on this one, but I do want to get you guys takes on this. Were there any like big standout moments in the game? Because I haven't played enough of this game to give it an honest review, so I'm not I'm not going to give it a score or anything. But with the, like you guys said, there's there's two returning party members, and I think that when you meet those characters in this game, especially Garrus, like, those are just some of the coolest moments, and they are, like, incredibly memorable as, you know, just across all video games, because it feels like you did something with this character in the previous game, and now you have a connection to them. And then coming back in these very, like, cool and dramatic ways just just was awesome. Like, I just thought it was really, really cool reuniting with these characters after everything that happened in the first game. Were there any other moments, probably after I've <laughs> stopped play- or after I've, you know, further than I've made it in the game, that are sort of, like, just really cool moments like that? I've got two that really come to mind whenever I think about Mass Effect 2. Uh, the first one is with Garrus when you first meet him <laughs> and you do like the, uh, the handshake. Every time I see that, it kind of reminds me of the scene in, uh, Predator <laughs> with Arnold Schwarzenegger and, uh, Carl Weathers, I think. I, I just think of that scene every time I see it. It's just like, you walk up to Garrus and he's like, Shepard, you son of a gun. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> even if you don't have a good relationship with the, with him in the first game, it basically happens, which I find kind of funny. Uh, but in the the second big moment for me is definitely when you're doing uh, Kasumi's mission, um, because you know most of the game is just standard. You're you know you're basically a military guy. You're like going to installations and killing people to get whatever you want. That's kind of what it what it comes down to. As you know, it kind of sounds like a reductionist way to describe it. But <laughs> with Kasumi's mission, you're doing a heist. Um, like a big part of the mission is like casing this place and figuring out how you're going to get into a vault. Uh, and I, I think that scene's really cool. And it's from a DLC. Like I don't know why it's not just in the base game. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I know why it's not in the base game, but it, it's hard to think of playing the base game without that scene because it's just, it always comes back to me whenever I think about the game. Uh, and like, there's a third scene that's kind of like that too. It's in the Lair of the Shadow Broker DLC where you're breaking into the Shadow, Bra- the Shadow Broker's spaceship. Uh, I don't want to go too much into it since you haven't got, I don't think either of you have played that part, but it's, it's a really cool scene. I've got three that come to mind. One is the Kasumi mission. That was one of the first missions I did, and I I really loved that mission. It was a good addition. But yeah, as Jason says, kind of weird it wasn't in the base game. 
Um, then one of the others is Garrus's loyalty mission. In his loyalty mission, Garrus is out for revenge on someone that used to work with him, and you kind of see Garrus go down this path of violence throughout it and up until you get the mission too and you get a chance to stop him from going down this path any further and i feel like because if you were already built a connection with garris in the first game that moment's probably one of the the most personal moments in the game and it just it feels like there's a weight on a lot of weight on you to make sure your friend does not do something terrible and that's probably one of my favorite moments from the entire game and another one, not going to go too much into depth in it, but there is a mission pretty late in the game where stakes are extremely high, and if you don't do things right, you can cause a lot of bad things to happen. And that is honestly one of the best missions I've played in a video game ever. I mean, you can just say you're talking about the suicide mission. I mean, like, that's the game's whole draw. Okay, it's the suicide mission. <laughs> the final mission of the game is... Yeah extremely dramatic and like the whole game is building up to it i think that's just another thing that makes that mission so good it's just everything's been building to this moment everything you've done in the game affects what happens here so like if you do if you do uh everything in the game it'll go a completely different way than if you did barely anything and i think that's just awesome well I think it seems like everything's going to be pretty positive, but let's, you know, wrap it up, put a clean little score on it. <laughs> so, Jackson, give me the, the pros, the cons, and your score. It's not really a pro or a con, but as you guys kind of said earlier, the story of this game kind of takes a back seat and doesn't feel as connected to the main story throughout the entire trilogy, but it's still a good story, in my opinion. There are some there's some events that happen in it that are pretty good. I think missions in general in this game are just a lot more personal. And I keep saying personal a lot. But with a game like this where you pretty much control like connections with everything, it makes sense why it's so personal. And I think this game just takes all of that from the first game and ups it up by 10. The gameplay, big step up from the previous game. We didn't talk about this much, but... Mass Effect 1 kind of has a looter-shooter-ish vibe to it when it comes to weapons and stuff. Because you can find new weapons pretty much anywhere. In this game, weapons are a lot more unique, in my opinion. There's less of them, so you get to spend more time with them. And your class, like, it, it dictates which weapons you can use, but there's not really upgrades or anything for them. So weapons already kind of have just their own thing going on, and I th think that just kind of makes combat a lot better. Like, it was tied to your skill tree. In this game, it's tied to research projects. And it, it's mostly just simple stuff like more damage or higher mag. But just everything in this game takes everything about the first game and makes it so much better. And I gave the first game a 9, so obviously I'm going to have to give this game a 10 out of 10. Yeah, I can kind of agree with a lot of what Jackson said. Um, I mean, I'll say the biggest flaw of the game, uh, something I didn't really mention when we were talking about the story, is that there, there's no real central villain in the game. The first game, you know, you have this obvious uh, job to do. Like, your mission is to stop Saren and the Reapers. Um, the whole trilogy is about stopping the Reapers. This game... You're fighting the Collectors, who work for the Reapers, but you don't really interact with the Reapers at all. There's one Reaper that you know about, uh, Harbinger, and he's clearly telling them what to do, but you never even meet him in the game. <laughs> like, there's not even a scene where you talk to him, or anything like that. The not a, not a real scene. The of him, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. So it feels like there, there's not enough of a focus on the overarching plot of the trilogy. That said, the whole plot line, I, I think Mass Effect 2's story by itself is really good. You know, fighting the Collectors is a really interesting mission. And knowing that there's something bigger behind it, some good sequel bait. Uh, but this is the second game of the series, so we already know that something bigger is behind it. <laughs>
I, overall, I don't really have any major complaints with the game. I mean, it, I would consider this one of my top three games, like, of all time. I vastly prefer it over the first one. Um, I don't think it's perfect, though. Like, there, there are some obvious flaws. And I think I'm going to give it a 9.5. I'm not much for giving 10s, even if I do love <laughs> a game. Yeah. Okay, so the official TBM score for Mass Effect 2 is... 9.75. Oh, Man, all yeah. you gotta do is take out one of the scores and suddenly the numbers get a lot cleaner. <laughs> okay, but that's a lot of Mass Effect 2 and we got a lot more stuff to come. So we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna come back with some of them sweet, sweet headlines. <laughs> As you know, Halo Infinite had a good bit of screen time over at E3 last week. You know, they talked a little bit more about when the game's coming out, but mostly they talked about the multiplayer. We got a trailer for it, and then we got an announcement that it would be completely free to play. And then a little after, they talked about how seasons would work and how they're, they're a lot different than most Battle Royale seasons. But one of the big draws is with each season... It kind of has its own story going on, and they're starting that off with Returning to Reach, which, as a big fan of Halo Reach, I'm pretty excited to see how this goes. Yeah, I'm always weary when it comes to free-to-play games and the way that battle passes and things work, because a lot of games, a lot of games want to be Fortnite, but the only reason that the Fortnite overarching narrative works is because they know how to walk that incredibly fine line between vague, broad story gestures and very fine, specific details. And I, I like Halo a lot, and I think this game will be good, but I'm going to be honest, I'm a little concerned about there being a story to the multiplayer, and I just want to know what that means. <laughs> I think another big advantage Fortnite has is storytelling through map design. Every time yeah. a major story arc happens in Fortnite, there's a corresponding change to the map, which kind of keeps things yeah. fresh. I don't think they're going to do that in Halo Infinite. I imagine they'll add you know, additional maps that are based on the different games. I, I have to assume that they're just going based off the games. If they start adding stuff from books, that's going to get wild. Yeah, I, I <laughs> should in, mention, though, though this game... Like, you mentioned how Fortnite does a lot of storytelling through maps. This isn't a battle royale, and telling stories through map isn't as easy with, you know, a much smaller multiplayer map than it is a gigantic open battle royale map. Wow. Yeah. Shots fired at Battlefield. <laughs> what I'm kind of expecting from this, and I could be totally wrong, this is just a shot in the dark, is that there's going to be, like, an opening cinematic for the season, which will be something Reach-related, and then, like, the skins and things you unlock from the Battle Pass will be Reach-themed, but I don't think there's going to actually be a tangible story that goes to the multiplayer. I What I'm hoping is this will jump to different points in the Halo timeline and just dig a little deeper into them, but not necessarily be, like, a story you are playing through or really involved in. I want to kind of paraphrase some of the quotes from this article. Um, These stories will focus around your character that you create in the multiplayer. And it, it says that your character will be deeply related to the story evolving in the larger Halo universe. So I imagine it's kind of going to have a sort of destiny storytelling where... You kind of do things that benefit the greater good, but for the most part, it's other pre-established characters that'll be, like, personal people. I hope they go, I hope they, they really cop out on this, and they're just like, hey, remember that scene in Halo 2 where Master Chief jumped on the big walker robot and destroyed it from the inside? Yeah, you were also there. Uh, 500 feet away in a warthog. <laughs> like, I hope it's. I hope it's that. I you were just that lazy. Just conveniently always there whenever Master Chief did something cool. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. turns out you were good friends with one of the members of the the team from Reach. You also turns... met Cortana once. 
<laughs> it turns out that uh, when Chief drops the bomb onto the Covenant ship in Halo 2, that just is you. <laughs> you were the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I'm, I am really excited for Halo Infinite, and I really hope that there is a lot of... I really hope that there is a lot of story to this, both in both in terms of the story mode of the game and the multiplayer, but I'm I'm weary. I'm keeping an eye on it. <laughs> um I still I feel like I need to look up what happened in Halo four and five because I I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I loved Halo Reach <laughs> and I loved Halo Two. And those are the only two Halo games I got that into. Uh, Cortana goes bad, and you gotta stop her. That's that enough. Much yeah, that's up. that's the main yeah. part. <laughs> the new Cortana has an outfit, so that's cool. It's not Cortana. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, you may have heard it. G4 is back, baby. And this time, they're coming around with a whole bunch of people that I have no idea if they even are remotely related to video games. Uh, a while Just back, like before. they announced that Xavier Woods was joining them, uh, and now they're setting up a D&D livestream type thing with a whole bunch of... They call them WWE superstars. Um, I've never heard of any of these people. But they got <laughs> Tyler Breeze, Ember Moon, and Mace. Yeah. <laughs> and and also so, Xavier Woods and they're going to play some D&D together cuz that's what everybody's been looking for. I just love that G4 is coming right out the gates of getting back and, and getting back to their roots of people turning to their channel and being like what even is this? <laughs> like uh it's it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um I also want to point out that this is streaming on Twitch, YouTube, and Peacock. And hmm. like... Any questions? <laughs> the Peacock <laughs> one kind of has me thrown. I mean, maybe Peacock and G4 have some kind of deal. But that seems like a, a, weird, a weird grab. But, I mean, like, I love D&D. I really like actual plays. I think it's cool to see, like famous athletes doing D&D live, or, you know, actual plays, but I just, I'm not sure there's an audience for this. Like, is is the Venn diagram of D&D players and professional wrestling fans, like, is there any overlap in that? <laughs> I, I think there's a weirdly high overlap between D&D players and, like, wrestling, re wrestlers. But I don't think that there's quite the same overlap with wrestling fans. <laughs> that yeah. said, they are doing this for a charity called Connor's Cure, which is a cancer research charity uh, that the WWE themselves created. So that's pretty cool. That's kind of interesting. So you all know good old transformer movies and when i say the good old i mean the one that is okay and then the rest that are there i guess bumblebee's apparently good i haven't seen it and transformers 3 is a work of art <laughs> i've only seen three transformers movies and for some reason one of them is bumblebee so like i can confirm bumblebee's fine I've only seen three, and one of them was Transformers 3, and that was the one where they said that the moon landing, they discovered Transformers on the moon, so I'm all for it. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways. So, the seventh installment in the Transformers franchise has been announced. It is Transformers Rise of the Beast. You guessed it. It's about the Beast Wars. It'll be set... Heck yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's, that's something... It'll be set... I love me some Beast Wars, a show <laughs> that I remember very little about, other I... than the fact that they look insane in that show. show you know, I this actually ties watch. back to one of our other articles, because I remember watching G4 on Saturday mornings and watching Beast Wars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, they did have that weird animated block. It was that, G.I. Realized... Joe, and 
something else. I think it was just another Transformers series. That sounds right. But anyways, right. this will be set in 1994 Brooklyn, New York, starring Anthony Ramos and Dominique Fishback. And there's something weird with this. So Optimus Prime is going to be in this. But if I'm correct, Optimus Prime and all the Autobots, other than Bumblebee, do not land on Earth until Transformers 1, which is around 2007, I think. But this takes place in 1994. How the heck is he there? Alright, I found a quote about the movie already that said, There are prehistoric animals that travel through time and space. Powerful beasts. So I'm going to assume Optimus Prime also travels through time and space. And is a powerful also, beast. Also, I have a much more important quote that I need to talk about from this. This is a USA Today's article. Um, I'm not reading any other thing, anything else for this for context. Uh, this just caught my eye. There are different breeds of Transformers, said Cable, said Cable Jr. And... What does that mean? <laughs> like, is is automobile a breed of transformer okay, and animal right. a different breed of transformer? All right, I didn't really want to go too much into Transformers lore on this podcast. My information is too much for this podcast to handle. But there are you got Dinobots, they turn into dinosaurs. You got regular Autobots and Decepticons that turn into cars and planes and all that. You got Terracons, which I'm pretty sure are dragons, and then you got the beast, which turns into, like, beasts, like gorillas, like Optimus Prime does. Yeah, and that's not even including some of your other Transformer types, like the Combiners. Yeah. Where multiple Transformers combine into a single large Transformer. You got the Construction Cons, they turn into Devastator. I don't remember the other you ones. You got the Voltronites. Well, look at this guy doesn't even know about the Minicons. <laughs> <laughs> I'll admit, I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to Transformers. Like, I had some of the toys as a kid, but I think, like... I, I honestly think I've watched more of Beast Wars than all the other Transformers shows put together. And I think I've seen only, like, 10 or 12 episodes of Beast Wars. So, like, again, my, my knowledge is limited, but everything about it just sounds absolutely insane. If you go even a little bit further into it than just, that robot's a car sometimes. Okay, I also, I, I guess I'm wrong. I just read another line from this article, and it says, These Terracons include the fierce nice bird, the night bird, a Nissan GTR. What? Huh. That is the scariest of the dragons. <laughs> I'm yeah. telling you, if I ran into a, a GTR, like, on the street, and it turned into a robot, I would be very scared. I would tell you, if a Nissan GTR ran into me on the streets, I would be dead. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I do have to tell you one more thing. Anthony Ramos said he got his driver's license for this film. Heck yes. <laughs> also, I, I, I guess this part doesn't be included, but... There are two different things. The Terracons and Terracons. Terracons are dragons. Terracons, I guess, are Nissan GTRs. <laughs> Important distinction. Every single one of them. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I Specifically, that line in the article says, These Terracons include the Fierce Nightbird, comma, a Nissan GTR, comma, and Scourge. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm confused. Oh yeah, that's scourge. It... Just ignore him. Wait, wait. How do we know it's not sane? I think that I think that's supposed to be three different one things. That is the nice and then scourge. Speaking of cars doing things that cars shouldn't be able to do. We got a new Fast and the Furious, y'all. And now that he's back in the limelight again, Vin Diesel is here to remind you that he still wants a Fast and the Furious musical. <laughs> now, we have heard rumors of a Transformers crossover, a 
Jurassic Park crossover. Uh, maybe there was something about G.I. Joe at one point. Maybe all these things crossing over with Fast and the Furious. But above all of those, I just want to hear Vin Diesel's sweet, sweet voice. Like, just two songs isn't enough. I need to listen to Vin sing some more. I love hearing Vin Diesel sing. It brings a tear to my eye every single time. <laughs> like, the Fast and the Furious series is, of course, insane. I mean, it started as a street racing movie like 20 plus years ago, and then now they, I think they just straight up go into space in the new one. But, like, a musical would still be the absolute weirdest turn for this series imaginable, and I would be so on board. I would watch all nine movies leading up to a musical if I knew a musical was on the way. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm in, actually, now that you mention it, but only if the musical is, like, a canon sequel. Yeah. Like, yeah. if, if, and it's if F10 important. is a musical, I'm in. <laughs> actually, I think it should be, the musical should be a recap of the first nine films that give newer audiences a feel of what to expect when fast and the furious 10, which is the one that will have all the crossovers in it just so they know what they're expecting. (laughs) No, I don't, I think that's a weak route to go, right? Just giving me a recap of movies that I could have already seen. Give no. me every movie as a musical. It needs to be a sequel. <laughs> this movie needs to be completely designed from the ground up to be a full Fast and the Furious movie. However, everyone is singing. So Ooh, they could have a race where the all the cars revving up makes a song. I'm basically writing it for you. I'm wait, wait, I'm, so pretty we'll sure just... if, I'm pretty sure if I talk too much more... Whoever makes Fast and the Furious is going to owe me some royalties. Alright, folks. That just about does it for the Totally Biased Media Podcast. We do hope that you'll drop us a line on Twitter, at TBMcast, on Instagram, at Totally Biased Media, or send us an email to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. Let us know what you want to hear reviewed, your own personal reviews for things, what you like or dislike about the show. Any of your thoughts, you pass them along. We're going to read them, get overly invested in them, and make drastic changes to accommodate them, even if they don't make sense for the program. But all that being said, we do appreciate you listening, and we do hope they'll drop us a line. (laughs) Anyways... For the Totally Biased Media Podcast, I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. And I'm Jackson Walkup. And you just felt the bias. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. It's alright.